bitch. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Bitch, the Chicago. Hello everyone, what is up? It is me, Ewan, and welcome to a new episode of the We Love Dad Movies podcast. Today, we're diving back into the 90s for some great late-era Clint Eastwood action, going up against John Malkovich, one of his stereotypical sicko portrayals as an assassin, on the with his sights uh, on the president. <laughs> it's 1993, it's a great time. But yeah, today I'm joined by Dan Greener. Hello, Ewan. Hello, Dan. Oh, I've been enjoying our little podcasting oh. game. He's doing the John Malkovich I've thing. Been this is brilliant. Listening to you in your studio, <laughs> recording about the mummy and thief. You gotta rendezvous with my ass, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> Straight out of the best line of the movie. It is the best line of the movie. But yeah, we're going to talk about In the Line of Fire, a movie that I have seen many, 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 many times before. Um, and one that you've only just watched for this first podcast. time. <clears throat> yeah, it was. Um, I mean, it kind of came up because there was a, kind of a big death in the movie world. Mm-hmm. Got to specifically say movie world to avoid the, movie, the other the big death movies. that's just happened. Um, it was, uh, yeah, obviously Wolfgang Peterson died and I messaged you and said, I mean, I initially said Air Force One because mm-hmm. also a classic, big fan of Which it. Which I'll definitely, you, that'll definitely be a one for Oh, you. for sure. And, and that was <laughs> that was when you said sort of it was either that or in the line of fire and I think we both kind of gravitated towards this because you liked it a lot. I'd never seen it before. Um, and I'm very glad we chose it. Yeah. Because yeah, totally. it rules. It it's is, it's so a good. great movie. It's a very, very good movie. Um, and it's one of those where it's like, it just reminds you how great Clint Eastwood is. Um, and I love, there's a specific subgenre of like um, <laughs> Clint Eastwood movies where he's like the dinosaur who is slightly politically incorrect but he's got a heart of gold and he's a big charmer and he's got a little wink and he's also a badass. And that's basically what he plays in here. And, you know, the film itself has such a great premise as well. It's not your typical cat and mouse thriller because the whole, the whole great twist here. And, you know, it was what, 30 years after the assassination of JFK, the whole thing. Exactly. Clint Eastwood plays uh, a secret service agent who was on Kennedy's security detail during that fateful trip to Dallas in November 1963. The crazy part of this is that, and I kept thinking this when I was watching it, that you're saying like, yeah, the whole part of the movie is like, Clint's too old. He's been doing it for 30 years. He's, he's aging. He's not what he used to be. This movie came out 29 years ago and I saw a new movie with him in the cinema last year where that was still the plot. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's been, he's been doing that bit very well. The man There's does not little... stop. He does not stop, and he's such a great filmmaker and, and industry talent, and quite a, a, a paradox of a person as well in many ways. He's um, he's got a kind of. I, I watched this with my brother, and uh, he I think he really liked it too. And we both kind of agreed that Clint Eastwood's got a kind of charm that no one else has ever quite had since, or quite nailed. He's like a grumpy dad where you want to kind of go. Oh, he's kind of a prick. I don't like him. But then he still wins you over? It's in that kind of like, oh, I'm just busting your balls kind of way. Yeah. He's one of those guys who knows every single bush- button to press. But like, you know, he just kind of, he gets away with it. Because like, yeah, no, he it's interesting. And, you know, particularly for these 90s era Clint Eastwood movies, obviously, you know, 
kind of getting towards the twilight of his career, which again is crazy to say because, you know, he's in the 30 year long twilight of movies in him. You know, quite a retrospective look back through, you know, especially with stuff like Unforgiven as well, which, you know, he's taking a very big inner look towards his his legacy within the Western genre. Whereas within the line of fire, you know, I'm not going to say it does the same thing for Dirty Harry because it absolutely does not, you know, it's not anything like those movies. Um, but it is interesting to see him, you know, a lot of other Hollywood stars would deny that they're getting old. Um, but Clint, as he got into that era of his career, you know, he, he embraced it. You know, he fully was like, you know, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a fossil. You know, I'm, I'm completely yeah. out of like step with everything here, but I still have important contributions to make. And while in the line of fire, you know, his character in this isn't, um, you know, it's not one of his most famous kind of latter day roles or, you know, one of his most, I'm going to say nuanced or, you know, most emotional. Um, he still pulls out some really good moments of vulnerability here that contrast nicely with, you know, the the earlier stoic, angry, anti-hero performances that we came to associate with him in, you know, the 60s and 70s. He does. And he, and he, he pulls off the action as well. And he pulls off oh, yeah. the, the kind of charming side of it. He pulls off the kind of grumpy old man, you're too old for this shit side of it. Uh, there's only the one part that I'll go into in a bit that I don't quite think is pulled off, which I think might be the one part we agree on um, about this. But it's, 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 it, he's, yeah, he's just got this kind of, like I said, his personality that no one's sort of really had since. And when you look at so many older movie stars now, like action stars, especially, they're still trying really hard to look young. <laughs> they are, they are. And there's people I love, even people like Tom Cruise, who, as an action movie star, say what you will about the guy as a person, I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to disagree with all that stuff, but as an action star, he's one of the best currently doing it, but the guy's still trying to look like he's 35. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that Clint Eastwood maybe didn't, you know do the the secret medical rituals that it's taken for people like tom cruise to no apparently he's a crazy health nut though like really really into i don't know fitness and healthy eating and all this so that probably explains why the guy started a movie at 91 just last year (laughs) yeah totally um but yeah we should probably go into a a little synopsis for the viewers uh listeners because in the line of fire is is quite underrated and i'm honestly overlooked movie um, given as well that it was nominated for several Academy Awards, including for John Malkovich, and you know, kind of like I a, didn't know a, that. And yeah, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. All right. Um, and you know, Malkovich in particular, I feel like I just haven't, even though he's such a you know, like he's such a big presence within you know the action genre, even you know, like I've most of the movies I've watched with him have come out like either just before or after the Millennium. This feels to me like quite an early performance in his career. You know, I'm not really that familiar with his works from you know oh he also did the killing fields and empire the yeah, yeah. I forgot about that but um you know like this is this is kind of you know if we're talking about like action movies it feels like a great entrance for him into the genre um he's incredible the, in it too he's very good we'll, we'll get into it but yeah the, the synopsis of this movie like we said you know clint uh plays agent frank horrigan uh he is a secret service agent who was on kennedy's security detail during his assassination in 1963 uh and at this point when we when we first meet him you know again this is a funny just fact about the secret service is that their two jobs are like protecting the president 
and dealing with counterfeit money. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's two, two very, you know, you don't think those things would go hand in hand, but they do. Um, and he, you know, he's been working undercover. He's been doing a lot of like field work since then. He hasn't really, you know, done any of the bodyguard and stuff because, you know, being in part, in, you know, being a part of the security detail that lost the president, you know, for the first time in a hundred years or whatever, you know, that's a pretty, you know, that's going to weigh on a man's conscience. And I think that's a great, you know, entry point into this movie, you know, it's such a fascinating kind of concept, you know, the, the, the guilt that must come from, you know, that's a, that's a job where you can't, you know, you can't lose, you can't come out at the end of the day having, you know, the worst thing happen, happen, even though it so easily can happen. And, you know, like, while other, you know, uh, presidents have come close to being assassinated as well, like, you know, Ronald Reagan and stuff. Um, this is like the big thing, but yeah, he plays a secret service agent who's been not doing the bodyguard stuff. Um, and then he's called in to look at a threat against the president's life that they're taking slightly more seriously. Um, and it turns out that this is John Malkovich, who is playing. Um, we'll get into the many the names. Twist. Yeah, we'll get into the, yeah. we'll get into the, the twist. Of the NBA police playing a, playing a guy called Mitch Leary, uh, who instantly zeroes in on Horrigan. Um, because he's not just your average ordinary assassin. This guy's got a very specific set of skills, and he comes to basically have a back and forth with Frank because he finds the idea of him and and his guilty conscience um, quite interesting. And, and Leary is an isolated, disturbed figure, and in Frank, you know, he finds someone who he thinks can understand his, you know the the crazy thing that he's about to do and, and from that point on you know they have a back and forth clint's looking for him john malkovich is trying to avoid him um, real cat and mouse as as he's trying to figure out how to assassinate the uh the the, in, the incumbent president who is this is during election year as well the unnamed so background like, president the, un, the unnamed background president um and yeah, that's that's basically the movie. It's 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 Clint. You know, he gets asked. He asks to get put back onto the security detail. You know, you get lots of good back and forth with with him and and the other Secret Service agents who are like, "What this guy? He's 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 old, whatever." And you know, he still still cuts the mustard at that age. I think he would have been what 62, 63 when he did this. I think um, yeah, about sixty two when he filmed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, no, that that's basically it. We'll go into the specifics of what happens later on and stuff, but. Uh, most of the movie in this is just is just um, <laughs> Clint getting progressively more and more angry with John Malkovich's infuriating phone calls and being able to dodge wiretaps and traces and stuff like that. <laughs> That's what works so well for this movie is like 50% of this movie is Clint and John Malkovich on the phone saying fuck you to each other and you don't <laughs> want to stop listening to it. <laughs> yeah, totally. You got John Malkovich going, you don't understand, or you do understand, stop lying to yourself, all the while Clint Eastwood's going, ah, why don't you go suck at a corn cob, and stuff like that, and it's just, <laughs> it's great, it's a great time. It's, it's, um, there's, there's so many aspects of it, just like straight from the bat, that are so reminiscent of those kind of movies that we both love, those dad movies, and it, the fact that you recognise every actor, I was pointing out someone every five minutes. Renee like, just seems to have a habit. Because I remember, you know, she she was in Lethal Weapon 3 as well. That would have been a year before this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I always, sometimes I get, this is stupid, I, sometimes, like, Dana Delaney is also, like, an early 90s, mid-90s actress who I kind of, like, I, I 
sometimes their roles blur for me. I had Gillian Anderson. I remember thinking that as a kid. I think the first thing I saw Rene Russo in was the remake of, was it McTiernan? The Thomas Crown Affair? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, with Pierce Brosnan. And she was in that. And I remember watching that as a kid and thinking that was potentially Gillian Anderson, realising at the end it wasn't, don't necessarily look that similar, but um, easy mistake to make when you're like 10 years old. Um, but then you've got like uh, Gary Cole's in this. Um, you got Malkovich. You got Frazier's dad, John Mahoney, who's I really like in this. I really enjoy him anytime he shows up. I don't know why. Um, it's great, and I miss. I I said this on when we did Predator Two. I, I miss that when every actor was just you knew who they were, and they yeah. just did a great little surprising role. The dad did- from Home Alone is in it for about forty five seconds. We didn't even, we've not even mentioned Tobin Bell's cameo. Yes. So is in this movie as well at the very beginning, playing a sicko counterfeiter. Um, she, I love did, that. Have you ever seen The Firm? I don't think I have. And I'm a, right. I'm a big cruise guy too. Yeah, you need to watch The Firm. That's like uh, early era Tom Cruise, like good, like, like psychological, not psychological, but like a proper good thriller movie. And Tobin Bell plays a sinister kind of hitman character in that as well. I mean, <laughs> I is it might have come out the same year, maybe. I don't know. Speaking you know, of Tobin, I think it was. I think it was 93, yeah. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of Tobin Bell. <laughs> the it, year it, of Tobin Bell. <laughs> when we did Predator 2, we did kind of go very all over the place. I was very excited. I was, I was wanting to talk about a movie I'd seen the day before that was way more <laughs> insane than I'd remembered. <laughs> Do we just go sort of from the start in this one? <laughs> Just yeah, yeah, try yeah. and we'll, sort of talk our way through. Yeah, yeah, that's that's totally fine. We'll um we'll talk about um you know him being called out to the the, the you know the, the threat itself and um the the initial scene where we meet Horrigan um and he's got his partner Al Andrea um played by Dylan McDermott. McDermott. Yeah, who's by the way he's got great hair in this movie. Yeah, I, Dylan McDermott's just so good in this as well. Uh, like, I, yeah, yeah, he, he's and I've, I've not really seen him in much either. But he's, I, I mean, he does a lot of TV nowadays. I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, um, I, I can't say I'm too familiar with him. Yeah, but they 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 establish the back and forth here. Frank is a hard ass um, who you know values punctual. You know, he, he's he's. He's so much implied in that first meeting where Dylan is rushing, or Dylan's character is rushing to to get to their their meetup point, and he's late and he's sweating, he's stressed out because he's the rookie, he doesn't really know what he's doing, and Clint's just like, uh, "Are you going to give me any more excuses?" But that's all as we come to learn later on. You know, even though he's a professional and he's not really the most sensitive man ever, he's got a lot of stuff boiling underneath the surface. And- yeah, and he cares as well. Like you yeah. see so many moments where he cares. Like the the kind of the weird part is in their first meeting is they're going to it, it act it feels like they're just going to the office for their day at the office and then yeah. they're going on a boat undercover to potentially stop some I don't know, terror if terrorist is the word. But no, it's 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 some, ca- some, money counterfeiters. Yeah. Money counterfeiters, of course it is, <laughs> this yeah. Is, this is why you some need bad to watch guys. to live and die in LA because it's all about counterfeiters. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's kind of they you think he's almost going to let them kill Dylan McDermott, and instead he he guns down two of them immediately. In very dirty Harry fashion as well. Very the dirty casual, Harry the, fashion. The, the very the very casual <laughs> gun posture that Clint has in his movies, where he doesn't even need a he just flicks the gun and yeah, just somehow gets a perfect shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it, and um, it, it it starts off a great through the whole movie back and forth between them two where. The character of Al is trying to go sort of 
really wrestling with whether this is a job he wants to do and whether yes. it's a job that he wants to carry on doing and if he can if he can hack it basically. Yeah, because and that's the really sad thing is that you know he says in that in a conversation you know after this this near death experience he has because when they're on the boat you know he nearly gets suffocated. Um, how he signed up for the Secret Service because he wanted to protect people and he's being given undercover work and infiltrating, you know, counterfeiting rings and stuff, which isn't what he wanted to do. He just wants to protect people, but he's here kind of being in that that um, proactive part of the service or whatever, and it's very stressful for him. Um, and that's where you see, you know, before this, we, we get occasional moments where we first meet uh, Frank in his apartment. Well, not first meet him, but, you know, when we, we were introduced to his own Hell living yeah, space yeah. And, and it... And it shows so much about him because, you know, it's a small, like, one, two-bedroom flat. Um, all he does when he gets in, you know, he takes off his, his his blazer and tie, pours himself a scotch, puts on his his classic, you know, jazz music, uh, and just sits down on the couch. You know, he's got, he's got nothing else kind of going on with him. And, you know, even when after that event where they're on the boat, you know, as he's trying to calm um, Al down, He's like, oh, I'll take you. I want to grab some, uh, grab a bite. And he's like, oh no, I gotta go to my family or whatever. And yeah, then he, does, and he, does, he does more work, you know. He and he, he's sixty three, and I think there is a there there is throughout the entire movie, it's a reckoning, almost for both, you know, Leary's character and Frank's of have they wasted their lives, you know, Leary with, you know, spoiler alert, this is this is your last warning. Um, Leary with his, you know, his CIA work and wet boy, his, and his and his, his wet boy, his military, his years of military and, and and espionage service or whatever, and Frank protecting, you know, presidents and and working to protect that. You know, it's it's a great, you know, two forces going up against each other. You've got the guy who was meant to protect, you know, this the most symbolic person in American democracy, the guy who was meant to embody all the those American values or whatever against the, the, the disposable asset, the guy who the world has never yeah. known about. Yeah. And, and who, and who shows the dark side of, of, of that, you know, that, 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 that creeping underbelly or whatever. Um, and that it's such a good duel between them because, you know, as much as Leary does some messed up things in this movie, he makes some interesting points and it's, it, you know, as sad as it is, like Frank and him have a lot weirdly in common, even though they're they're on two sides of like a separate, you know, kind of like coin or whatever. Yeah, and what I like is that this is a kind of obviously the whole part of this movie is this threat against the president, and the movie focuses on the two people. It the president is almost not a character in this movie. Yeah. Fred Thompson's more of a character. Than oh the yeah, and I'm <laughs> I'm not sure if does the president I don't have want any to see lines? This man in my office ever again. <laughs> don't call me Harry. <laughs> does uh, does the president have any lines in this? Uh, he says he has some speeches. And uh, yeah, he's got a little bit like, but President Traveler. He's the, Traveler. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if that was a code. I think it was a code name, right? Or was uh, that his actual name? I, I don't know. Idea. <laughs> I mean, that's this this backs up our point. Mm-hmm. He, he's not really a character in this movie. If they made this now, it would be they would be Frank and the president would be best friends. It would bully. The other interesting thing is, you know, maybe they, they, they touch on it briefly, Frank's relationship with the past presidents or whatever, yeah. and saying how he was very close to Kennedy. Uh, Played he, piano he with Nixon. Du- he did a duet with... with <laughs> 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 um, but, you know, it goes into that whole idea of, like, you know, 
Secret Service agents at the end of the day, they might have to work for someone and, and, and give their life to someone who they hate. And yeah. You, know, you have that, that the moment where he discusses, like, um, you know, Nixon asked me to go clear out some anti-war protesters and I said no because of freedom of speech and stuff. And it's like, ah, this is, again, kind of Clint Eastwood, the paradoxical figure where it's like, you know, outward-leaning, right-leaning celebrity, but you look at his art and, and how he depicts himself, you know, in Hollywood, it's it's quite liberal. Um, yeah. Clint Eastwood's character's job is solely to protect this man. Mm-hmm. But it just delves so much into why he needs to do it for himself. Yeah. And it, uh, and for him, you know, it, it, if you want to look at it in the most matter-of-fact way, it's because he's a career-oriented person. Not career-oriented, because that would imply that he has some kind of ambition. He's very work-oriented. He prides himself on his job. And you might say that, that you know, there's, there's the implication in the movie that... Um, the night before Kennedy's assassination that maybe, you know, in fact, they, they show, you know, they talk about how he was like, he froze on the job and he wasn't there to take the second bullet that, that got Kennedy or whatever. Um, and, you know, you, you look at it, the way he applies himself fully to his work and, you know, his his wife and, and you know, family kind of collapsed around him as a result. But, you know, he's constantly been atoning for those for those sins the, the, his entire life. Um which makes the, the the weird romance, you know, it's slightly more redeemable because um, we'll get into that. But you know, it, it, by the time that events happen and and he is on the path to having some kind of life that he should have had um, after you know his his monu- you know the failure to end all failures, you know that is it's quite a triumphant moment. Um, and you know that great moment where they they leave the the sad one bed apartment behind and that's them closing that chapter on their life yeah and i'm going to go back to that towards it as we yeah, talk totally. about the movie because i have a slight issue with the way the movie ends um yeah. oh <laughs> <laughs> pigeons yeah ends one scene too late yeah they could have just For sure. the door couldn't yeah they? would have been a great ending yeah, yeah larry's yeah. voiceover on his answer machine message at the end but yeah, no yeah. they got they got a cut to them at the lincoln memorial a yeah. place where clinton's multiple times in the movie <laughs> it's I mean do we do we just go into the kind of romance subplot uh, we can now? do now yeah yeah because totally. it's it's the only thing that doesn't work right it's the weirdest thing to me so like it's just it's just um, like as much as I think Clint Eastwood is very very dashing and charming a good looking man yeah, even good, at the age of 62 a, yeah he's a silver this movie, um it's just the, the relationship is handed to him quite literally on a plate um i feel like there's that kind of you know he he's mentioned it before you know he's playing the fossil with a, with a kind of twinkle in his eye and you know he's a cocky guy he knows he's at you know he knows he's past his prime but yeah. he's like you know he's just scamping a scoundrel that he can make you know politically incorrect comments around renee Rousseau's agent you know who's also a member of the secret service um and then she just Falls for him, uh, and it's, it, it's, just, it's 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 a weird one because I think it would have made I think it would have been funnier if instead of him being slightly creepy or whatever, maybe they had like a bit of kind of like a flirtatious back and forth, but it was just a laugh. Yeah, you know, and, it was and, just a bit of banter or whatever, and they became close friends after that. There's, whereas there's what we get here is yeah, whereas what we get here, it's kind of just like um, you know that that really awkward scene where after he takes her out for ice cream, he's like, if she looks back, she's interested. <laughs> She looks back. Exactly. And it's it's the part that doesn't fit with the rest of the movie for me because <clears throat> the whole plot of the movie is is Frank Corrigan feels like he's failed. He wants to prove that he can save this president. 
he wants to feel worthy of the job that he's done for the last 30 years and prove to Mitch Leary that they are not the same person or not two sides of the same coin uh, as much as they are. And having this kind of relationship with Rene Russo's character, who and she's she's good in this. She does her best with it. I think she gets a little wasted because yeah. they focus her too much on the romance subplot. And she, again, yeah, she does well with it. She's a very beautiful woman, but I just think she's she would have been capable of giving the movie so much more than she's given in the script or in the material. And the idea of having Frank be this character that's lost his wife, lost his child, he doesn't see his daughter anymore, who I guess is probably in her 30s at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels like... It's a weird way to say it, but it feels like he's getting too much of a win by just having this beautiful woman immediately sort of attracted to him and taken by him. It, it, that's it, just the weird thing is that, like, Russo's character in this movie, you know, she purely exists as an outlet for for Frank to externalise his grief. Um, you know, she doesn't... We never really talk much about, you know, she plays Agent Reigns. She doesn't really get to discuss, like, any kind of, you know, anything about herself. There's no conversation about herself, you know, except for the part where Frank is trying to rib her on being, like, a, a quota to abuse feminist voters or whatever. You know? Yeah, and the show is a very capable agent at times yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I wish they'd gone more into that. And you can even just put aside the age gap, because there is, like, a 25-year age gap between them. But that's movies. I'm not saying it's right, but how many movies have had a 50-year-old actor paired with a 30-year-old actress? True. It's and have put very, them together? Very, you very just kind of have here. to go, yeah, okay, it happens. I don't. I'd rather they just pair actors up with people their own age specifically to give older actresses that kind of role and, and I don't mean that like oh, all actresses would be love interests I mean that like you know yeah you know what I'm trying to say well yeah you know it's only totally what you mean what you're saying um we're just two dorks articulating it very badly yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah at least at least the romantic the romantic stuff it at least gives us the funny scene where they're about to get into bed and they're getting rid of all their, their secret oh, service it's here. a naked gun joke is, is this a naked gun joke? No, I mean, it basically is. That's what oh, I'm trying to say. Right, I'm not, I haven't seen naked gun in a long time, so I don't know if it's a legitimate naked gun joke. Mm. But I turned to my brother and I was like, this is like something out of a parody movie. Like, I was expecting them to drop like a brick and like an umbrella and like, yeah. just all kind of crazy it's items. It's very funny because there's very clearly people behind the camera throwing shit in front of the lens. <laughs> oh, for sure. And they, they do that and it weirdly kind of doesn't fit and then they almost have sex and I can't remember what they get interrupted by. They win me back in that scene with Clint's line at the end, when yeah. he's, he's like, "Oh, now I've got to put all that shit back on." <laughs> yeah, yeah. It won yeah. me over. It's yeah. It's just I kind of like them together in the movie. Clint Eastwood has a kind of charm to him. Some of the lines are you might say a little kind of misogynistic, but well, he's he's, he's the politically incorrect dinosaur. Yeah, who, exactly. You know, he's he doesn't mean everything he says. You know, I, and, and, and yeah, <laughs> I just don't think it was needed. I think if you cut this movie down to like an hour forty-five and taken that out, mm-hmm. it would have been a better movie. It would have, and you could have focused more on um, on his pal Al, who, um, despite starting really strongly, um, after that opening, you know, couple scenes, he kind of got relegated relegated to a few different cameos. Yeah, where and some of the scenes doing... together are the best in the movie. Yeah, I, I really yeah. like them and together in that. And, you know, it's a shame because, like, you feel there's a really there's a there's a depth 
to Al's character that the movie never really devotes enough time to actually exploring in a worthwhile way. You know, he, he's he's a young guy, he's got so much to live for, whereas... And this is the thing that, I again, at the end, I don't feel they really go into, is the guilt that he has for Al's death, you know? Um, this is another guy who's been killed. You know, it's it's really Frank's fault that he dies. You know, Al is like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to quit. And and you know, Frank, you know, justified or not, it's like I need you, pal. I need you to 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 be on this mission or whatever. Um, and his death occurs, and there's this this tragedy to it, and there's upset or whatever. It's quite a stark, you know, um, brutal death. That, and that what gets. they could, what they could have massively played into is. Because we've been saying the whole sort of part of this movie, a big part of it is kind of Frank wanting to prove he can do this after the failure he's had 30 years ago. The reason Al dies is because Frank is not willing to. Yeah, and also because he's too old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and they they could have really played into that guilt. of Mm -hmm. He could have shot Leary. I I mean, the scene is, for, for anyone who's not seen it, they're chasing Malkovich along a rooftop, Clint Eastwood, Frank, fails a jump, is almost saved by Leary, who's holding him up in, in off of rooftop, and Frank pulls his gun out, and he knows that if he shoots Leary, he's going to kill him, but he's going to fall to his death. And because he doesn't do that, Al tries to shoot Leary and is killed by Leary, because Frank is almost not willing to sacrifice himself to do this purpose. Mm-hmm. And I wish they played into that a little bit more and kind of had him reconcile that whilst Al died and other people have died and, and he's had these failures, he can make peace start with living, himself. Start living yeah, for exactly. that. Which, which, you know, it, it does, it does, it does approach that towards the end. Yeah, it does. But it, with, with Al in particular, I just feel like the, the, that partnership needed to, he it needed to be a little bit more, you know, uh, a little bit more time devoted to it, I think, to really kind of flesh it out and, and make that moment where he does, you know, get shot feel more raw because, you know, up until that point, it does feel like a bit of a game. Leary refers to this this little duel that they have as a game. Um, and the people that we see who Leary disposes of, you know, up until that point, they're not known to Frank. You know, these are people that are just passing it in and out of his life. You know, you have the um, the two asshole hunters that are, like, shooting at the... who shoot the ducks, and he's like, why'd you shoot the duck, asshole? And he kills them. <laughs> That's a great moment. I'm going to kill the president. Um, and then he murders that that that, that poor um, that poor couple in 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 LA, um, and that's quite a sad moment where it, where it hits home, you know the the realness of it all. But but it's really Al's death that kind of is like the oh this is this is personal or whatever you know this is this has become more than just a job. Yeah, and it's we're going a lot into the character stuff because like I don't know how much you you can go sort of step by step in the scenes of this movie, but a lot of the scenes play very similarly. Where it's, a lot of it's just basically just call, banter. Yeah, it's it's a call, it's a it's a phone trace, call. Trace failed. <laughs> it's it's Tra- a debate. Trace it's, successful. <laughs> <laughs> it's them going to a location, almost catching Malkovich, traveling with the president, having another phone call, and just constantly being one step behind him. And and the beats that are important are those character beats, and some of them, like we say, don't do as well. The stuff with Al is good, but there's not enough of it. The stuff with Rene Russo's character Reigns is. Like we said, not. I don't think it quite fits in the movie, but the stuff between Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich is so great to me. 
mm-hmm. that it kind of almost makes up for that. Like, I love yeah. that stuff between those two so much. It's not a pairing that you'd think of, you know, as, it's as, not. as, as, as that, you know, ever going to happen. But, like, Malkovich shows why he's so talented in this. He's movie. fantastic um, in this. He, I feel like he elevates the material um, with what he does, you know, in so many ways, he could have he could have done this into such a campy kind of comical, goofy, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, performance or whatever. And there are there is elements of camp to it where you know he's he's doing the the, the master of disguise routine where he's got the fake prosthetic noses, the gold tooth, you know, the gold tooth. Yeah, I like you know, so much of the gold tooth. Yeah, where he's pretending to be like um, a guy who's completely out of it and like the road and Clint Eastwood's like it's Larry. Um, but by and large, he brings an element of nuance and emotion. Um, which really culminates and explodes in the the phone call he has with Frank. Um, I forget which one it is. It's it's the one. It's after they've been to, you know, because what happens is they get his fingerprints during their first chase and from the car, back, yeah, 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 and it, and it comes back and the FBI are like, oh, that's a classified C twelve. He can't see that. We we did the didn't get any prints, and it's because Leary is a former CIA operative. Um, and they go to uh, his old house um, where they then meet up with the CIA who are trying to clear up their own mess. Um, and Frank uses the knowledge he gets from the CIA in this scene where they talk about, you know, Leary being a former web boy, former assassin, <laughs> uh, and how he murdered his friend who came to see him or whatever. And he thinks he can really, like, take the piss out of him at this point because, you know, at this point he's letting off steam because Leary's been calling him, making fun of how unfit he is, how he's, you know, failing in his new role to protect the president or whatever. Uh, so he lets off some steam in this. You know, he, he's like, ah, I see how you treat your friends. You, you slit your friend's throat. And Leary, he just, the, 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 the calm, calculated, kind of reserved, here is my manifesto for why I'm going to kill the president. Um, turns into an emotional. You don't know what they've taken yeah, from me. He starts they sent, it. They sent my own friend to kill me, and you know, considering they only meet face to face up close and have actual conversation up close once in the movie, and that's at the very ending. Yeah, Malkovich achieves so much in that phone call, and I, it's a brilliant scene. I might have like a kind of nineties action movie hot take. I'm not sure if it is, but. I don't want people to be mad at me for this. Is he better in this than he is in Conair? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I think. Okay, well, that's good. I'm it's, glad you it's, agree. Two, it's two sides. It's, it's two different, the, different characters. Things, for sure. like, you know, like in in Conair, he's playing a cartoon. You know, Cyrus the Virus. He's playing like just the most ridiculous, like a nineties version of a Dick Tracy. Yeah, villain, I you know? love him in Conair. Oh, he's brilliant. In that. He's so good in Conair. But that is Cyrus um, the Virus. I feel like <sighs> that kind of creepy John Malkovich portrayal became yeah. bread and butter. He's so good. Whereas did he win in, for this or did he, just he was get nominated. nominated? He was yeah, nominated. Whereas whereas here, you know, he's still being creepy and he does a lot of creepy stuff, which we've come to expect from Malkovich. But there is an element of actual, you know, human character drama there where, you know, the film has a salient message to say about people who are asked to do the most horrific, awful things for this country, um, or for that country rather, and how you know, at the end of it, he was considered too dangerous. You know, you, the, the film leaves it up to your interpretation as to whether or not he's being honest, but, you know, it certainly lends more weight to the idea that he is, you know, the idea that after he was done, you know, all done doing all this awful work for the CIA, he tried to retire and, and live a peaceful life and the government tried to kill him. Yeah, I would um, argue he's he's yeah. he's never, and he says this too, Frank, that he's 
throughout the movie always honest with Frank. He feels like he is he's done all this horrible stuff. He was never gonna receive any kind of notice about it. He was yeah, and then they tried to kill him and get rid of him. They treated him like a disposable weapon and not like a human. That makes him want to prove himself in the same way that Frank wants to prove himself, not as a failure and not as a dinosaur, but as a someone who can do good. And that's that's the whole thing that makes them, like you say, two sides of the same coin. And it's it just elevates the movie so much. And when you finally the the kind of a lot of action movies kind of can falter a little bit on their third act, but this one does a really good job because you finally get this head-to-head confrontation between them. Yeah. And both right. actors make the most of it. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's um, it's very... It's, it's, I'm a big fan of America's Cold War fuck-ups coming back to haunt them <laughs> as a trope as well, you know, as, as a historical yeah, yeah, yeah. trend as well or whatever. And Leary, you know, encapsulates that so well. And Frank, like we said before, he's kind of like the opposite side of that. He's the He's the... It's difficult, like, you know. He he is attached to the present. They talk. They have that great conversation, actually. Um, you know, with with uh, Reigns, where he's talking about window dressing and female agents being window dressed, and how mm. how the Secret Service agents are also window dressing. We're all part of this um, performance that is that is America, and that's another aspect to it that you know, if you on the surface you can look at this as like a quote you know a cat and mouse thriller but there are there are elements of political subtext there that are very interesting and something that i find is unique to the 90s action movies in general where you get that post-cold war era and the threats go largely from you know eccentric foreigners to americans you know there's that yeah, whole yes. looking looking inwards and seeing a where now and you know or looking beyond earth like with like a godzilla or an independence day or whatever and i I think it's interesting that like yeah we'll we'll talk about their face to face encounter because I do I love that scene so much because you know at this point in the in the film they've had multiple attempt multiple brushes with Mitch yeah I mean um, do, do do we want to go a little into what Mitch's plan is yeah, to yeah. kill the president because it's kind of weirdly ahead of its time as well with the whole um, not three D printed oh, but totally three see- D printed gun yes yeah I absolutely said this that if this movie was made today he would have three D printed that gun <laughs> so. Mitch Leary's plan is he's constantly following the president and he's constantly following um, Frank and talking to him all the way through. And as he's doing it, he's kind of, he's going to show up in all these various disguises. Um, There's all these various different characters and he's got all these different kind of names that he's made. So his plan is that he he donates, I think it's like $50,000 to a business. California Victory Fund. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he does that so he can get in the same room as the president. And the whole time he is building this sort of plastic gun. Out of model, out of him. Um, he's very into, um, he's, and that's another, actually, that's another interesting wrinkle to this. I could be completely misinterpreting this scene because whenever I watched it before, I always thought that he was using parts from remote control model kit cars to build this gun. But is it also, you know, was that a sincere interest for him? Has he? I think it was. He, yeah. Was is that the thing that he tried to do after everything went wrong, and he's going to use the the, the one hobby he loved that he that was then taken away yeah. from him as a murder weapon? Oh, there's so many layers. <laughs> so they have it that he builds a squad. He builds it out of plastic parts. He has like springs from a pen. 
he's doing this so he can go through the metal detector and not be caught and he has bullets hidden inside his keys and, and all this kind of stuff and he wants to get in the same room he wants to shoot the president he doesn't care if he dies when he does it because he's making a point it's the line he says on the phone I have a rendezvous with death and so does the president and so do you Oh, which leads to line. the line from before, which is I amazing. I have a rendezvous with death, Frank. You have a rendezvous with my ass, motherfucker. Sad, <laughs> <laughs> like that's the line of the movie, and I, I kind of as they're finally about to confront each other, Frank is he he assaults a bellboy in the hotel uh, when he's he's on this kind of protective detail with the president. Um, he's already been seen as a failure a bunch of times over the course of the movie. He's failed to protect the president. Uh, well, he's not failed to protect the president, but he's failed to catch Leary on multiple occasions. He's called a false alarm when Leary pops a balloon. He embarrasses himself and Leary wants him to do this. Um, and he finally realises what Leary's plan is. Um, they they realise sort of who he is through through modellers that he's worked with. I mean, this, that scene, it's an insane scene. It's like the one scene with the, one of the scenes in the movie, I think it goes a little too weird, where they meet that guy in the wheelchair. who's like, yeah, he gave me $1,000 to buy this wheelchair. And this is if I ever see him again. And pulls out a giant gun in front of two my Secret favorite, Service members. My favorite thing about that as well is the um, they go from, oh yeah, he was in Phoenix, to the FBI agent going, oh, you should talk to this guy. He knows everyone in Phoenix. <laughs> Phoenix is like a massive city in Arizona, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, is the equivalent of the older just Scott Pilgrim versus the world when he shows him that little picture that he's yeah. driven from of flowers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's Mitch Larry. Yeah, I know him. Um, <laughs> and he, eventually, Frank sort of makes it to the... Is it in California? I forget where it is. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. In, um, it's the... I forget the name of the hotel. It's the uh, the yeah. It's in L.A. It's in the Bonaventura, yeah. Bonaventura so, Hotel. Yeah. So Leary's there with the guy that he's who runs his business that he's donated all this money to. He's in the same room as the president. Frank makes it in because he knows Leary's in there somewhere. There's a really fantastic moment. It's such a small moment, but it's possibly my favorite moment in the entire movie outside of the rendezvous line, which is he leans in to. So Leary's talking to the guy who owns the business and Frank leans in between them to speak to the guy yeah. and doesn't realise that it's Leary right and next asked, to him. And they ask Leary, who's that? And he's like, oh, he's a secret, secret service, service agent. agent. I love that. And he's talking all this business stuff and he's keeping up this character that he's oh, got. Oh, the Japanese are thinking about the next quarter century. <laughs> yeah, they're doing every quarter, they're doing every quarter yeah. century. Um, and when they, when they kind of, the first time they properly lock eyes with each other, is Clint getting his hero moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Leary goes to shoot and, and he dives in front of the bullet mm-hmm. in very classic slow-mo fashion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, and it works great. It's, and, uh, is it sort of straight away when Leary just takes him hostage then, isn't it? And they go, yeah, to yeah. The... Because he's, you know, taking a bullet to the chest, even with a Kevlar vest is going to leave you with the, as it does, as it does Frank in this leaves him yeah. with a broken rib. Even the healthiest sixty-three-year-old man. Yeah, and then they and then they they go into those iconic uh, elevators. Uh, he he smashes out the light bulbs, um, so the the snipers, the sharpshooters, can't see um, inside, so they can't take a clear yeah. shot. Frank sneaks um, his earpiece in. Yeah, he's got the earpiece, so he can talk to to Agent Reigns and coordinate the the stuff or whatever. Um, but at that point, it's interesting because. 
Leary goes from this kind of like angel of vengeance type attitude to a spiteful kind of vindictive, you know, you don't get it. You, you're you too dumb to understand what this is all about. You've ruined everything. And I know I'm going to die. I'm okay with dying. Um, but if I'm going to die, I'm, I'm going to take you with me because I've got to kill, I've got to kill somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've like, got to prove some kind of a point. Yeah, now um, that, that he's he's not been allowed to do until that point, and um, it's the, they have a sort of really great the, the scene's really great because they have this back and forth that works as a back and forth, but half the stuff that Frank is saying is going back to Reigns as well to give her clues on what is going on and where to shoot and what Leary is doing. Aim high, aim high. <laughs> Are you gonna shoot me? There, there's a there's a great line where um, I'm gonna like not get it exactly right. I'm going to sort of paraphrase it, but Leary says something about like suicide. Like, do you want me to, do you, do you care about suicide or something like that? Or do you believe in the nobility of suicide? Yes. Do you believe yeah, in the nobility yeah. of suicide? And he's like, he Frank says something like, not really, but if you want to blow your head off, be my guest. <laughs> I remember it, it threw that to the day, Harry line. Course. That's a bit of dark humour from Leary as well, there. You know, I think I think Frank treats it as a sincere comment, but Leary's just kind of laughing at the whole situation. Yeah, he at that he's kind of just like, ha, well, do you believe in the nobility? You know, he's, he knows he's fucked at that point. Um, and you know, the, the sharpshooters aim high; they take down the glass panel, and Frank manages to uh, throw the, the least convincing uh, punches of, of Clint Eastwood's career. He gets one good, one good in. one, and yeah, yeah, I'm going to give him um, this. And he then, throws a Harrison Ford punch. Yes. And then, um, you know, Leary's hanging off the edge. And there's that, that kind of repeat situation, which encapsulates the two's philosophies very well. Mm. And how Frank, even though he's asked to, to do things he doesn't want to do, because it's his job, he is compelled to do it. He is an honourable man at the end of the day. And while Leary would consider that foolish, you know, because Frank has never been asked to do the things that he was asked to do, you know, he's still going to do it and, and he tries to save Leary. He's like, I want to save you or whatever. Well, I don't really want to, but it's my job. And then Leary does the classic night ease villain death. He just throws himself off the elevator. And I think it's a very good thud. It, it is. Oh, it's great. Thud. The only thing both me and my brother said for this is that we thought he was going to like get impaled on a flagpole or something. There's, <laughs> I love visual metaphor. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a great thing in this where like, there's so many movies where they the villain does that. He'll cause his own death. He'll let go because he doesn't want to be saved. But I think it means more in this movie than it does in a lot because it goes back to that same scene where Al dies and, and Frank is hanging off the rooftop. He has that moment to realise he wants to live, whereas Leary uses this moment to prove that... It, it's kind of... Frank realises that his life, what he does with his life matters. Mm-hmm. Whereas Leary always thinks that his death is going to be the thing that makes the the point, the, the makes the message. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's kind of that. I think it kind of implies the audience where it's like, "This is the message we want to give to you that the life you live is more important than the failures in your life." Yeah, make the most totally. of it, make the best of it, work past the things you've done, mm-hmm. and that's Leary's failing is he can't do that. Yeah, and, and and I think that's a very good message. The only thing that I that I can say against the movie is it's very different for Frank Harrigan protecting the president than it would have been for Mitch Leary, you know, torturing random guys and CIA sure. black yeah, sites I mean, or whatever. Which I think is is even though I, I totally agree, I think it's a great message to convey. Um, 
I never feel as though the movie reckons with just how wrong Deliri is. Not like, quite. He is, he is a, he, he, yeah, yeah. I think I'm doing legwork for the movie when I say that that's the message a little bit. <laughs> no, I think it's good. I think it's but a good interpretation. I, I think it's it's a it's the kind of slightly the message I took away from it, whether it was fully intentional or not. Because mm-hmm. um, the the movie never gets too political, even though it's about secret service members. And well, the that's again, it's a very nineties movie, and that's yeah. Sense. You know, you have even the protesters. You know, there's I think they, there's a there's a slightly uh, obscure hint to to reproductive rights. Yeah, you got like um, yeah, you got that sign yeah. and stuff. Um, but you know, I think I think Travis is just Travelers is meant to be like what like a George H W Bush standing. It feels like because this would have been a year before, a year after Clinton was elected. Yeah, it's um, like I think anyone Republican or Democrat in America could kind of look at this president and place <laughs> their president in there. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. for better or worse. Yeah, like there's probably plenty of people that are like picturing trump in that role now mm-hmm. um, and i'm not going to go into the whole trump thing but um you know it, it's that'll be a funny movie I, yeah <laughs> uh yeah i doubt, uh, I doubt Oregon would have, been... have to accept uh, uh, trump's big mac orders yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> but yeah yeah no. it, it, oh, go on. it's yeah i think overall it, it's that's kind of the message i take away from this movie i don't i think you're right i don't think the movie does as good a job as it could and I'm sounding negative towards it because I've said some more negative things, but the cat and mouse element of it all just works so oh, well. Oh, yeah, it's a very, it's a very slick and competently made thriller. Yeah, like, and I it, very I much think enjoy it, and it's elevated this... by the performances as well. I think if you don't have Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich in this movie, um, it doesn't work because I think it, it relies on two different Americas. There, you've got Clint of the Greatest Generation, you know, the generation that went to war. Uh, you know, the Second World War and forged a new country after that. Yeah, and, and Vietnam. Learys, and then you have Learys, who is born into, you know, um, that post-war era and then fights all of America's dirty conflicts and is forced to reckon with America that is constantly experiencing crises after crises. Um, and I feel like that's a very compelling central conflict and it's employed well by the kind of old guard actor that the East is. And then the kind of at that point the emerging presence of Malkovich. I think it's very, very Yeah, and they they don't make them like this. No. Anymore. <laughs> I, I truly believe that they don't think they make this specific kind of movie anymore. And I, I miss it a lot. I you know, one that I think lets the kind of cat and mouse characters and the the kind of tension of it all take the front seat. And let the message take a backseat a little bit, and let you work it out for yourself. Yeah. Um, a massive, a massive, um, but well, a very, very well, like good box office gross and getting Academy Awards. You know, those things today tend to be mutually exclusive. It feels. Um, it I does. This isn't a movie that yeah. I could see being up for kind of awards like that anymore. Yeah. It's, oh, it's not. Totally just forgotten. Inyo Morricone did the score for this, and it's weird. I didn't know that. The, the score is great. I never knew that was yeah. one of his movies. Um, but yeah, no, Morricone did the score, and it's one of his more um, understated works. I feel like usually when you watch a Morricone movie, um, you know his music really takes center stage. If you think of something like you know the the Dollars trilogy or yeah. the Untouchables, is a big one for me. I think that's the best score, and that that is like constantly really <laughs> this. This this is more of like um kind of fades a little bit. You know, it's it's the the stereotypical. Nightly, you know, trumpets, military brass kind of feel to it. Um, yeah, and if it you has s- some good melancholic moments as well. I think if you said movies that he had done, 
with Clint, this would never be like anyone's first guess. I mean, I say I didn't know this until two minutes ago when you just said it. <laughs> I did pick up on the score about that. I did like it a lot, and I don't. Yeah. I somehow missed that in the, in the credits. Um, but yeah, I, I miss I miss films like this, mm-hmm. and I'm not. Yeah. Again, I, I said this last podcast. I'm not going to keep going into this point. I'm not like a oh movies are so bad now kind of guy. So many movies that come I'm out this year. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm getting that way a little bit, but I still find a lot of movies I love. I think there's a lot of problems with blockbusters nowadays. Like, mm-hmm. I'm still hanging on with like Marvel, but I'm it's kind of going narrow, after it. It's, a narrow, it's the narrowest scope of things. I think 30 years ago there were so many different ways you could be a blockbuster, whereas now it feels like you either have to be um, a, a Disney-owned property, a Marvel, or a Star Wars. Or not even a Star Wars, you know, like at Solo or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or, or you have to be like, um, you know, to, to be successful and find mainstream acclaim. Like, it's difficult because you know, as things are moved into streaming as well, it's so much more difficult to gauge popularity Absolutely, and, and to measure it against these things. But it definitely feels as if, if we're talking about movies that that reach real mainstream acclaim and success uh, in terms of you know beyond beyond the critic scores yeah. and then you know the, the the circles we kind of. Are, are in um you know it, it definitely feels narrower whereas you know if you if you released in the line of fire a day you'd be looking at like what 20 30 million oh it would yeah it would, whereas, whereas as opposed to 140 million you know like it wouldn't just it wouldn't be even you know because stars don't sell movies anymore right no it's and all that so yeah it's becoming a this is the thing that does make me sad with kind of movies nowadays is it's becoming a treat when a smaller movie does well not an expectation. Yeah. Like you have a Marvel movie comes out. And again, I'm, I am still a bit of a Marvel apologist. I'm then starting to kind of, I'm losing my grip a little bit, but I still enjoy a lot of the stuff they put out. (laughs) But I, for example, I really loved ambulance this year. I think it's, I think it's Michael Bay's best movie since the rock. I couldn't find a screening. How ridiculous is that? No, really? Yeah. We, we went like a week after it came out and it was barely shown anymore. And to me, it's genuinely probably my favourite movie he's done since The Rock, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't do well at the box office. And it's got this really 90s energy to it. And it's got and this it's insane really action. It's got a great J.J. performance. Ten years ago, you know, people would have been talking about Michael Bay being like the, the Grim Reaper of cinema or whatever with Transformers yeah. and whatever. I'm not going to sit here and defend the Transformers movies or whatever. But Bay... You know, he's an auteur. He, he is an auteur. Yeah, he, even, he, like, even, even if, you know, you, you consider his work lowbrow or whatever, you know, there is there is a distinct visual and style. You know, he he, he has his own, you know, he, he, he pioneers certain action sequences as well. And For sure. He's he's yeah. he's kind of, I have a simple thing with Michael Bay. Transformers, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the Transformers franchise. I don't hate it as much as most, but I mean, I never even saw his last one that he made. Outside of Transformers, the guy knows how to make an action movie. Oh, yeah. Have they all been super hits? No. I've seen The Island. It's fine. But he's made The Rock and Bad Boys and now Ambulance. And I wish we had more people like that still. Uh, there were so many more directors in the 90s that did that kind of stuff. Yeah. And this this movie in The Line of Fire is a perfect example of that. Yeah, R.I.P. Wolfgang, Wolfgang Peterson. Yeah, like, you know... I, I, I'm going to show my own experience there. I still haven't seen Das Boot. Um, I've neither have I. Neither have um, I. But I, I really enjoy Air Force One. Um, but yeah, I think I think these might be the two the, the two movies I've seen. I think might be in the line of fire and I, Never Ending Star. Story. He did as well. I've I don't not know if seen, you've seen a Never that. Ending Story. No, have you not? Um, I haven't seen it for a long time. Yeah. Um, 
but it's it's a, just a, a great competently made thriller and you know it's um yeah no it's just great i i very much would recommend in the line of fire if, if you if you're still with us after nearly yeah. an hour i very much recommend watching it <laughs> so um, it is it is not a forgettable 90s dad insert it is um is a very very um competently competently made film uh and 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 has some depth to it that you may not expect to find and you know again it's a further example of clint eastwood's in, enduring brilliance you know he he um very like we mentioned before like as an actor one very willing to take the introspective route with his career and show that vulnerability and he shows it well here with that facade of political incorrectness and, and, and whatever but it's um he, he it, it ticks all the boxes it's a great actor showcase it's a really competent 90s thriller. It's a good action film. It looks great. It sounds great. It's the easiest way to describe this movie is when I wrote about this movie on my Twitter, I literally just ended with the, the Vin Diesel, the movies gif, because that's how I felt when I watched it. And that's yeah. how I'm, I, I get like into things. It's go to the movies yeah. movie. And I, I'm trying to get so much more into this mindset because I, I watch so many new movies. Anyone who, sees my letterbox we'll see how many new movies i watch i just watch everything i'm trying to get into that mindset of why i watch so many of the things that i'm not enjoying as much that are new now and i just want to go back to kind of stuff where i just feel like vin diesel stood outside a sports car just going yeah. the movies yeah that's yeah. And this made I'm me feel slowly, like i've been making more of an effort to like because i've seen i think before this year i'd seen over a thousand movies um but i've been making a conscious effort this year to to actually start working down that letterbox. Yeah, actually. for sure. So even yeah, while yeah, yeah. with this podcast, I'm, I'm basically going through stuff that I've already seen. I'm we'll doing it through this stuff. podcast, through yeah. other podcasts. It's, yeah, it's, it's I absolutely, I agree with you. We'll definitely get to some stuff that I haven't seen on this pod soon. Uh, I don't I don't think we've, we have yet. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think we have, but I'll definitely, we'll definitely do that. Uh, it's just fun because I get to, you know, share the movies that I kind of grew up on. Um, but I definitely get to some ones that I haven't seen. Absolutely. Anyone who follows me on Letterboxd, the watch list is there. If you have any specific recommendations, please <laughs> let me know. I've I've actually treated, I was talking to you before this, I treated myself to two, two cheeky new Blu-rays. I ordered um, Night Moves, which is a Gene Hackman thriller from the 70s. Yeah. And um, the the Yakuza, which is a Sidney Pollock, Robert Mitchum one. Yeah, yeah. I, that too. I will absolutely be looking at this exact same sale that you looked at yeah, tonight as soon as I finish with um, you. Yeah, well, that was the in, line, in the line of fire. I don't think we have anything else to say on the movie uh, other than watch it because it's a great Yeah, time. please watch it. It's very um, good. I enjoyed it a lot. Where can they find you on Twitter, Dan? Um, I am on Twitter. My handle is uh, DanGreamer92, which is uh, G-R-I-M-A. Um, basically, it's where I just very often speak about movies so that I don't annoy the people on other social media or in my real life too much. And you're also on Letterboxd as well. I am you? on Letterboxd. Yeah, you can find that through my uh, through my Twitter page. Perfect. Um, you can follow the Wheel of Dad Movies podcast on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Wheel of Dad Movies. You can also check us out on Patreon where we have lots of cool, fun little extra goodies for subscribers. I'm currently doing a Big Trouble in Little China essay, which is all about how that movie is about the joy of... Uh, strange friendships and how there's a there's a wholesome streak to it the, and jack burton that, that i truly truly adore um i'm also doing some fun polls in the build up to halloween and spooky season looking for your takes on um dad movies that fit the horror movie blend i've got a few that we're already doing uh already got lined up so if you have any other suggestions please let me know because that would be very fun thing to do uh you can also follow me on twitter 
at Ewan Bruins Things. And before we go, the very last thing I want to do is shout out our patrons, uh, Thomas Mulgrew, Shaka, and Josh Brown. Thank you very much for subscribing at the Clemenza special and the not quite $5 shake tears. Your support <laughs> is very much appreciated. But yeah, this has been In the Line of Fire. We're going to go out of the in the line, out of the line of fire now <laughs> and yeah. say goodbye. See you guys. Goodbye. <laughs>